If you're with us last week, we talked about pride, and we were discussing and working through this book in, in 1 Corinthians, and we're saying that there's a theme that kind of jumps out in the book. It's that the people in Corinth neglected the love of God, the love of others, and an appropriate love of self, and instead ran to all sorts of other things. Uh, they were narcissists, and in their pride, as we saw last week, they begin to think this, I'm entitled to my own desires. I am free to do whatever I want, especially with my own body. And I have the authority to decide how to live my life. There is no law that I am under except the law that I create. So from chapter 5 and 6, here's what happens as we're catching up to where we are tonight. They not only are dividing amongst themselves in the church and saying, I'm, I'm more of a Paul guy or I'm an Apollos guy. They're splitting up who they're following in their pastor's. But they're also dividing amongst themselves to the point to where they're suing each other. They're bringing lawsuits against each other. So it's like, I have a disagreement with you. I'm not willing to listen to you because in my arrogance and my pride, I'm just going to instead revert to just bringing a lawsuit against you. And it goes even further. It's not just bringing lawsuits. Uh, Warning, it gets really graphic. This is where it's gotten to. To the point to where this has become accepted or at very minimum tolerated, that there is a man in the church who is having sex with his father's wife. And it's not a big deal. It's, oh, that's what they want to do with their own body. That's their decision. And what we read is it's not like a one-night stand. It's not a one-time thing. This is actually a continual occurrence that there's a relationship being destroyed, and there's something that's taking place in the life of the church that... Paul says that the pagans, the, those that are not inside the church, that don't have any religious affiliation, they even look at it and say, whoa, that's not okay. A man is having sex with his father's wife. And you guys are acting like it's not that big of a deal. That's their decision. Who are we to say anything? Who are we to step in and say, this is probably not right? He calls them out and he says, how arrogant are you? that you're not mourning over this, that it's just okay because it's their decision. It's their decision to do what they want with their bodies. There's a, a, a phrase that was very common during this time, or at least would have been common in, in this kind of construction. This has been become kind of the anthem of many people inside the church. It says this, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So this is the culture that they live in. Corinth, as we discussed last week, was a mecca of sexuality. It's a lot like Miami in many, many different ways. And the culture said, listen, what you do with your body and the way that you engage and satisfy your sexual desires is your decision. If you want to have some concubines, if you want to have some mistresses, mostly wives are just for having children, you know, you're free to do that. And the church has begun to not only adopt this view, but they've gone beyond it to where not only can you do what you want with your, with your body, have sex with who you want, engage and satisfy your desires how you want, but also if a son is having sex with his father's wife, that's not a big deal either. It's their decision. It's their body. It's their choice. See, there was this the prevalent idea in this time period that was that the material body was meaningless. It was worthless. 
So the culture would actually even promote, regardless of your religious affiliation, whether you believed in a lot of gods or you believed in one god or you, you associated one way or another, that the only thing that really matters is that you care for your soul. As long as you care for your soul, then you're good. And your body is to be used to satisfy desires, to engage in pleasure, because your body's meaningless. It's temporary. It's just a body. And so the church is taking this on, right? They're saying, okay, well, we like that. That sounds good. We're caring for our soul because we go to church. We're learning about God. We're listening to different pastors teach us about who God is. We're taking a risk and even assuming the title of Christian, that we're Christ followers. We're caring for our soul. We're in community. We're praying. But our bodies are our own. And our bodies are up to us to decide how we want to use them. And here's how Paul's letter reads. It reads like this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How have we got here? We said last week, he's only been gone for three years. And they've gone from growing, strong, established church to, as long as I just kind of tend to my soul, I can do whatever I want with my body. Because it's just a physical thing and sex is just sex. This is where we pick up tonight in verse 12, where he says this. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate or good or beneficial. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get away with, I'd be a slave to my whims. You see, Paul has spent some time, uh, a large amount of time, with the Corinthians, and they've been in relationship with him, and so they understand the idea of Christian freedom. Paul speaks a lot about, in Christ, by grace through faith, you are free. He has freed you. But what Paul is always talking about are non-essential things. So he says things like, you are free to eat what you want to eat. You are free to drink what you would like to drink. You are free to engage in festivals that you used to think was wrong to go to, but now you can engage in the city. You can engage in festivals. And also, and this was really shocking for the Jewish Christians, you are free to decide whether or not you or your children are circumcised. The non-essential things. He says the non-essential things, you are free. You don't need to be weighed down with all this religiosity that you have to follow and maintain and keep all these perfect things. But what they've done is they've taken this idea of Christian freedom that everything is permitted, and they've said, yes, everything is permitted. Not just what I eat and what I drink and what festivals I go to and whether or not I circumcise my children. Not just the non-essential things, but anything that my heart desires, anything I feel entitled to, anything I want to satisfy, anything that I think feels good and would be fun to engage in, I am permitted to do. And Paul is saying, whoa, you've gone way too far here. You've taken it to another level. It, just because something is technically all right or is okay, or you are legally allowed to do that does not mean that it's helpful. It does not mean that it's good. And it does not mean that you should engage in such a thing. He focuses attention a little bit further in the next verse. He says, you know, the old saying, first you eat to live and then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. Here's his argument. His argument goes something like this. At one point you ate, 
because you had to survive. You needed to eat food to live, but eventually you're living to eat. He's saying, this is what's happening in the life of the church. You know, I think back on my childhood and it was kind of like this. There was a moment where my parents said, we need to eat food tonight so we can survive. And they ordered pizza. And that was a big mistake because when they ordered pizza and I ate the pizza to survive in the moment, later I realized I'm just living to eat pizza. That's all I want. And so I begin to think, you know, okay, if I refuse vegetables and fruit and salad and anything that's green or has a name I don't understand, eventually my parents are going to be forced to keep me alive. So they're going to give me pizza or maybe pizza bagel bites. And so at one point I just ate pizza to eat at, you know, for dinner because I was hungry. But eventually I began to live to eat pizza. It was my goal every single night to eat pizza. And he's saying, here's exactly what's happening in the life of the church. You have engaged in something and you have put your guard down. You've thought everything is permissible. You can do whatever you want with your desires. You can do whatever you want with your body. And you've done something. You've engaged in a sexual immorality. You begin to have sex. And in this, in this instance, the church is not only condemning the, the man who has been sleeping with his father's wife, but it's very apparent that here also many people in the church are going to brothels and sleeping with prostitutes. And that's not a big deal either. It's like, well, it's okay. Sex is just sex. It's just your physical body. Your body is meaningless. It's to achieve and experience pleasure. Just care for your soul. And he's saying, you are being mastered by that thing now. You don't think it. At one point, you just engage in it because you wanted to experience it. You wanted to see what it was like. You, you, know, you broke down in a moment of weakness. But now, guess what you're doing? You are living to go to the brothel. You are living to indulge your sexual immorality in a way that is really unhealthy. And you think that you have the right to do it, and it may be good for you. But in fact, it's not beneficial, and it's not good in any way, shape, or form. You see, there's a reality that he says here in the, in the next verse. An, an anthropologist talks about this, where he's saying that you begin to engage in sex and it begins to master you. And, and our culture would say that's not true, that you're not mastered by it. Our culture would say very much the same as culture in Corinth would say, right? That sex is just sex. It's just your body. It's there for you to bring pleasure to yourself. You should care for your soul. There's an anthropologist that says this. Sex isn't some strange ethereal construct. It's as normal and necessary as eating and sleeping. And when we regard sex as something apart from the mundane, we are causing anxiety, fear, and dysfunction. This belief has ramifications, right? The cultural assertion would be that sex is mundane. It's just sex. Engaging in your, in your sexual desires in different forms is just receiving and creating pleasure for yourself. And it's just like eating or sleeping. And culture would say that you should actually engage in your sexual desires, whether that's having sex, whether that's looking at pornography, whether that's fantasizing, whether that's whatever form of lust you want to engage in, you should, because if you don't, if you treat it as some ethereal, strange construct, you're going to be welled up with fear and with anxiety, and it's, you're going to be dysfunctional. Well, I think the reality is that in truth, if you treat sex as mundane, and if you treat your sexual desires as 
just some meaningless thing that you should engage in to satisfy, that is actually going to cause anxiety and fear and dysfunction because, as we all know, sex and our sexual desires have power. And they have power over us. And they have a way of controlling us. And they have a way of of making us want to follow after them, of mastering us and creating fear and anxiety and dysfunction. I think a lot of times... uh, we think, and people in our culture as well, in the church and outside, think this. What if I'm not good at sex? And then I find someone that I want, I'm going to marry, and then I'm a disappointment. And I'm not what they're looking for. And so maybe I should like at least engage a little bit so I kind of know what I'm doing. So that wedding night and then beyond is not, you know, a total letdown. Or you're in a relationship where you are sexually active or you, you have, you know, engaged in certain things and you're thinking to yourself, man, do they really like me for me? Or do they just like me because of what I provide them? Or maybe you think to yourself, I know that there are a lot of issues in our relationship, but it's much easier not to deal with the dysfunction. It's much easier instead just to give my body away or engage in different sexual activities with them because it just masks all those issues and we can move forward. Or I, I don't know if they really love me and if this is going anywhere, but maybe if I give them what they want and engage in this way, maybe it'll create something that's really not there. Yeah, see, there's a lot of anxiety and fear and dysfunction in our motivation to engage and to indulge in lust, right? In our sexual desires or even deeper, you can feel like, man, there's a deep insecurity in me if my sexual desires that I have are not being satisfied. And that's why you have the pendulum swing, right? Which is the promotion of how many people you have sex with, who you have sex with, and how good you are at sex. If you just listen to any rap song, that's what it's about. I am great at sex. I have sex with a lot of people, and they're all really hot. That's like every single rap song, right? Because it's a parade of insecurity and fear. There is insecurity and fear written in our hearts, and sexuality and lust dominates us. It controls us, and out of fear, we project, or out of fear, we engage, or out of anxiety, we do things that we said, I don't know if this would really be good. It may be more dysfunctional in this relationship, or it may not be good for my soul, but I'm just too afraid of what happens if I don't. I'm too afraid of what will become, or what people will say of me, This is where Paul takes it. Look, verse 16, he says, there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. He's saying that sex is not mundane. It is not just some meaningless thing, that lust and all the ways that you engage in that, all the ways that you satisfy sexual desires are not just mundane. He says that sex is is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. He's saying here, okay, wow, like write to the Corinthians, write to them and and probably to us as well, right? That sex isn't just physical. It isn't just some exchanging of some mutually beneficial act or it isn't just satisfying some desire by watching something or by thinking something. There's a deep spiritual mystery that is engaged and a part of our sexuality. It's how we've been designed 
And we sense that because it has power. You see, engaging in and, and indulging in our sexuality reveals something, is that sex really is a motivation and engaging in any sort of satisfying the urges and desires that we feel is really just motivated out of a desire to be wanted and loved and accepted and needed. We want to be loved. We want to be wanted. We want to feel that. And so it motivates us to, to engage. In the next couple of verses, he says, as it's written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become one spiritually with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. You see, Christian, uh, the Christian belief regarding sex is often labeled, tell me if you agree with this, that you've maybe heard this or thought this. The Christian position on sex, which you've heard, whether someone's told you or someone has joked about it, is that Christianity says, wait to have sex till marriage. And you've probably heard or thought that, man, that is really outdated. That is out of touch. It is oppressive. And it probably is dysfunctional in a relationship because sex and engaging in sexuality in a relationship is a very important part of a relationship. And what we see in this passage here is that the labeling of the Christian belief on sexuality and lust is not a new phenomenon. Labeling it as oppressive and out out of date, out of touch and oppressive is not new. The, The the Corinthian culture was saying the same exact thing. They were saying, wait, what? Your body is just your body. It's just sex. It's just lust. It's just for you to use to feel good and to enjoy yourself. Stop you know, thinking too much about it. Care for your soul. Do what you want with your body. It's not a new phenomenon. And I think we have to, in the church and as believers, really listen and own some of our flawed explanations Right, we say things like don't have sex till marriage, don't look at porn, don't go to strip clubs. If you were having sex before you became a Christian, you stop having sex now, even though it was a norm back then for you. If you're in a relationship where you think you're going to marry somebody, and even if you're engaged, you still shouldn't have sex, you should wait till you say I do. And our, our statements are kind of like this. The Bible says don't have sex, so don't have sex. You got it? Good. Okay. Right? Just don't do it. Very clear. Bible does not want you to look at porn. Don't look at porn. Don't go to a strip club. You know, that's bad. Don't go to a strip club. Wait to say, I do, I do, and then you can have sex. And we give some explanations, like, right? We say, listen, if you wait to have sex till when you get married, you'll be better at sex. And you're like, wait, what? How does that work? Or they say something like, okay, well, if you have had sex before, or if you have done things that you know are wrong, and the Bible doesn't said, you're kind of damaged goods. But listen, you can really work back to like a second-rate purity. We'll call you a born-again virgin, right? You can like work back there. It's not as good as like a real virgin, but you can be a born-again virgin. Maybe we say that, right? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've felt that. Or we say, it's very clear. Just don't look at pornography. And if you have a problem with it, you know, just get rid of your phone. Like that's really easy to do, right? Or just don't have a computer or have your parents, hold on, wait, I don't have parents anymore. What am I supposed to do? Or just tell somebody, oh, that's great. I'm just going to go tell somebody. That's going to be really comfortable. 
And so what it does is it creates this world in which we put so much guilt and so much shame and so much just like black and white, here it is, do this, if you don't do that, you're failing, that we hold it in, right? We don't share it. We don't tell anybody. We're in community groups. We're in close friendships with our best friends. They don't know that, I'm, that we're looking at porn. They don't know that we have a really hard time with lust. They don't know that in this relationship that looks really great on the outside, it's really hard for us not to engage sexually. They don't know the dysfunction that that's brought in our relationship because we're too afraid to say anything because we put so much guilt and so much shame and, and so much pressure on this because the Bible says this, so don't do this that it becomes this really awkward and uncomfortable topic in the life of the church. The data suggests that millennials, uh, 85% of millennials are sexually active, meaning not that they've had sex one time, but they're consistently and continually having sex, 85%. And it also says that about 59% of millennials identify as a Christian. Now, that means identify. It doesn't mean they go to church. It doesn't mean their faith is active. It just means when they're pinned down to choose, they say, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian. 59% label themselves as Christian. 85% are sexually active. Now, here's what's interesting. This is not a new phenomenon. We're not like the, the most sexually active uh, generation, if you are a millennial, ever. Actually, previous generations um, seem to suggest maybe they're even a little bit more sexually active than millennials are. But what is unique about millennials is that we have by far the largest percentage of people that identify as no religious affiliation. Just we're nothing. We're nuns, as they're termed. So what, what it seems to suggest is here's what's happened. Millennials have grown up seeing their parents and leaders and others claim Christianity and then live a life that is completely different from what they claim to believe. That we've grown up seeing, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I care and tend to my soul, but I do whatever I want with my body. And I treat it however I feel like because I want to satisfy my desires and pleasures. And, and millennials have said, well, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of just assuming a label, but then it doesn't mean anything. I don't want to be part of a faith that doesn't have any effect on your life because you're just claiming something and you're taking another week out, day out of your week to go to church and everyone's just smiling, acting like everything's okay, but it's not. And I don't want to do that. I'm just going to stay right in the middle and have no religious affiliation. So I think if we were to say and to explain God's view of sexuality in the way that you see here in 1 Corinthians, it would look a lot different. Because here's the reality. We want to blame media, right? Like, you know, media. Media is the one that's made uh, so sex so publicized and in our face. Well, it, culture's always been promoting sex because guess what? We have God-given sexual desires. Yes, God-given sexual desires. He did not make a mistake when he made you a sexual being. He didn't make a mistake. You're a sexual being and he's created you that way. And here's what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying, God has given you sexual desires. 
there is a temptation to lust. There is a temptation to engage in all these things. And that though it may be legal, though it may be culturally acceptable, and everybody may say it's totally okay for you to do that, it doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's beneficial. It doesn't mean that it's appropriate. It's not going to benefit you spiritually. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. You're going to engage in that. You're going to give yourself to that. And what you're going to soon find is that when you just open up all of your desires and you treat your body like it's meaningless and it's worthless, you can do whatever you want with it. It's just to bring you pleasure. You're going to realize that you're going to find the exact thing that you hoped engaging in your sexuality would remove from you which is anxiety and fear and dysfunction because you're going to be mastered by it. It's going to dominate the way you live and the way you think, your routine, your relationships. You're looking for love and you're going to just simply find lust. That's what you're going to find. That's what he tells them. He says that there's a sense in which sexual sins are different from all other sins. That there's a different kind of power and weight that comes with sexual sin. And he says that in sexual sin, you violate the sacredness of your own body, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with another. It's interesting, right? He says that your body is sacred. Not that it's, it's not meaningless. It's not worthless. It's not just some physical tool to bring yourself pleasure. It is sacred. And that it's actually been given to you for God-modeled love. Not just lust. For God-modeled love. And so the question is, what is God-modeled love? Well, if you look in Scripture, you're going to see very clearly that God-modeled love is sacrificial. It's selfless. It's committed to the end, even to death. It is focused and not detracted. It is decided and it bears all things. Just to name a few of the attributes. See, God-modeled love, as we know as believers, as you scan Scripture, as you read Scripture, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who was sacrificial and selfless and decided and committed to the end, who bared all things, who was focused and not detracted. He is the example of love because he is, in fact, love. And Paul is saying here that your body is sacred and has not just been used, it's not to be used just to throw away, but it's to be used for God-modeled love. Meaning, when you engage in realizing that the reason that God is asking you to refrain from indulging in certain things that culture would say is acceptable and people would say, great job, and it's totally right and good for you to do. And when you realize that God is actually saying that it may not actually be good for you, it may not be beneficial, it may actually cause anxiety and fear and dysfunction. And when instead you realize that your body has been given, that it is sacred, that you have dignity, that it is for God-modeled love, it changes everything. It helps to remove the anxiety and the fear and dysfunction that you have because Christ is capable of doing that, the embodiment of love. You realize that you're made for more than just engaging and satisfying your desires, but you're an emotional and a spiritual 
and a physical being, and that's all wrapped together. And God is asking you to trust him and to look to him and to, and to, to give yourself over to him because in faith you actually become one with him. And that you can find love and satisfaction and joy and you can find a removal of, of an anxiety and fear in a relationship that's not dysfunctional. And then one day, if God brings somebody, you can find somebody that you can engage in the way that God has designed, which is in a, a committed relationship, a vow that is an attempt at saying, I'm going to try and I'm going to do my best. I'm going to vow before everybody that I'm going to be sacrificial. I'm going to be selfless. I'm going to bear all things to death. I'm going to be decided, I'm going to be focused, and I'm going to love. That that is actually the place where beauty and mystery and power is found in engaging and enjoying the reality of who you've been made to be as a sexual being. That the cure for loneliness is not sex, it is not romance, it is not finding a relationship that is romantic in some way, it is not indulging in all the different desires that you have, that the cure for loneliness is simply Christ. It is looking to God-modeled love, the person, the embodiment of love. Because there you actually find what your heart wants more than anything. Your heart wants to feel desired and wanted and loved and worth it. And you find it in Christ. He's saying that you are to let real love be your master. Let Christ be your master, not your sexual desires that are so easily will dominate your life and your thoughts. Don't settle for lust. Let real love dominate and be your master, which is Christ. This is how he closes out. He says, don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God has paid such a high price for you. He said, God honored the master's body, Jesus' body, by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as Jesus' body. You wouldn't take Jesus' body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. He's saying that Jesus, who is love, sacrificed for you. He paid a high price for you. And, and listen, this is really important. He didn't just pay a high price for you for your soul. He did, but also for your body because your body is sacred. He paid a high price for all of you, your soul and your body. And he gives you dignity and you are worth it. And you are, you are not just a throwaway your body and your desires and your thoughts just because you think they're meaningless and it, you're to save it. You're to hold on to it. You're to cherish it. You're to realize that you are sacred and you are full of dignity and you can find that in Christ because he paid a high price for you, seeing that Christ fought for you. He went to war for you because he loves you. And he didn't just go to war for your soul, but he went to war for your body as well. That's how he closes and he says, the physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole work, so let people see God in and through your body. He's saying that your body is sacred. That God owns all of you, the entirety of you. That he is to master 
every aspect of you, including your desires, because there you find a removal of anxiety, a removal of fear, a removal of dysfunction. Instead of surrendering yourself and giving yourself over to lust, you're going to find that you're not going to find love. You're going to find anxiety and fear and dysfunction. But when you give yourself to Christ, the one that you have a non-dysfunctional relationship with, where you've become one, that you don't have to just give yourself over to cheap, superficial, short-lived thrills. Because that's just simply lust. But you can find satisfaction and meaning and mystery and beauty in the relationship that you have with Christ. Regardless of whether you are single or whether you are married, the reality is, is that sex is not going to fulfill you. Just having sex or engaging and fulfilling your sexual desires is not going to make you a less lonely person, is not going to make you more happy or remove any anxiety that you have. Actually, the only place that that will happen is when you come to find Christ and you realize that he has paid a price for you, that he loves you, he went to war for you. And then you can actually appropriately make decisions to where you realize, I may have the right to choose this, and culture may celebrate it and clap but it's not good for me. It's not good for my soul. It's not good for my heart. It's not good for my mind. It's not good for the entirety of me because God has given me dignity and he's asking me to look to him. So that's what I want to leave you with. You may think to yourself, okay, Carter, that sounds great, but it is really hard not to engage. It is really hard not to look It is really hard not to think. It is really hard not to engage in these certain things. What am I supposed to do? And Paul is very clear. He says, you're to turn to God model love. You're to turn to Jesus Christ, the embodiment of love. Because there you find what you're looking for. Because he fought for you. He went to war for you because he loves you. Let's pray.